All right, well, tonight is going to be a little bit uh, different. So we have been in a series called You Asked For It, um, and, to, and this weekend is You Asked For It Live. You Asked For It Live. And so what I'm going to actually be doing is taking questions from you. And so we're going to spend the entirety of the time answering those questions. And I'd love for you to participate. Now, I don't mind. Now, listen, if you don't ask questions, we're not getting out of church early. I will just... <laughs> I will just start talking about stuff that I think is important, right? And um, like I was really uh, proud, regardless of where you are, this is not a division statement like the media loves to do, but I was proud that our president called Jerusalem the capital of Israel. And so like I've been celebrating that. I've been celebrating uh, conceal and carry reciprocity, passing the house. So I've been celebrating a lot of things. Um, and so now some of you have some questions already based on those two issues because those are kind of hot topics. And so, um, so anyway, so go ahead and submit your tech, your questions and then you can submit them anytime. So if you think of a question or you want clarification on a question, um, and so, okay, so we're starting to get questions. Hey, and that's good. Um, all right. So we'll just dive into this. Um, <laughs> and uh, this will be fun. All right, first question is, uh, my child is being bullied. How can I not be so angry and teach my child not to hate their bully and live in fear? Um, I think, you know, bullying is a hard thing. And, and when I went to school, we were bullied. We just, it wasn't, it wasn't the thing it is today. And, and part of the reason was, is you didn't have all the social media and all the texting. And so you didn't have you couldn't make bullying viral, if you will. And so there was a, a degree of separation, like you could go home and and not be bullied. I think it's it's really difficult. And I know as a parent, we've dealt with this. Um, I, I shared a little bit. We, we've had kids that, our kids been in school and, and had things happen. And, and as a parent, let me say, first of all, I'm human. So I get angry first because anger is the easiest emotion to achieve. You realize that? So because anger is the easiest motion to achieve, most people get angry when they're hurting. And the truth of it is you're angry because you're hurting because your child's hurting, right? So the first thing we need to do is get to what the real issue is and, and understand that anger doesn't really solve the issue. Um, after that, let me make sure I understand your question. Um, how can I not be angry and teach my child not to hate their bully? Well, I, I think for me, I, I've sat down with our child and, and had some grown-up conversations and you have to, I don't know what age your child is, um, but, you know, I've talked to them and say, you know, hey, you know they do this because there's some insecurity and they probably don't have some stability. There's, you probably have a stability in your life that they don't have. Maybe their home environment's not the same. And so what, what you do is you humanize the bullier, right? Does that make sense? Because when we're angry, we dehumanize. That's how people can uh, commit her. her you know, atrocious crimes against people is because it's no longer a human, right? And so I think you have to humanize the person. And, and you can talk about boundaries, and there may be, you may need to call the school, and we've done all that, meet with the administrators, the teachers. There's a lot of things like that that you could do. But I think when it comes down to it, first of all, admit, okay, my child's hurt and I hurt. And here's why we hurt as parents. We hurt when we can't fix it. Because when they scrape their knee and we could put them on the couch and sing their favorite song and put the little antiseptic on it and put the Band-Aid on it, you know, and get out Boo Boo Bunny. I don't know if y'all had, we had Boo Boo Bunny at our house. Boo Boo Bunny was a little bunny frozen thing that, you know, came out of the refrigerator and sat on all the little owies, right? So Boo Boo Bunny was a big hit, you know, until they got like, you know, six or seven. But anyways, Boo Boo Bunny was the boss for a while, Right. And so, um, and we still have one of our children that, um, I won't say which one I almost said it, but that child loves band-aids. We go through a lot of band-aids, but it means something special when we stop and put a band-aid on it, even still. And our child, our children are all older. And so we buy band-aids and stick them on stuff. And so, um, but we hurt, we hurt and get angry when we can't fix it and when our children are in pain. And so what you have to understand is, um, is that you're hurting, and so then you have to look in and say, well, what, what am I feeling? A lot of times it's, I, I don't feel like I'm in control. I don't feel like I can protect. So a lot of times we're dealing with some fear and things. And then humanize the bullier, and then, and then talk about boundaries of how do I stay away from this person, talk about truth, what is the truth about you, uh, and then look at if any actions need to be taken um, for the safety of the child. And so I don't know if that, that helps, but um, that's, a, that's a good start. So... Um, um, next question. Forgiveness. How do I do it? Um, <laughs> forgive, <laughs> forgive, 
Forgiveness is an easy thing to say, right? And, and can I just be honest? I think in, Christians are the worst at forgiveness ever. And the reason is because we know, we're, we're, we, know, we, know we have to. And so we do this thing, like, well, I forgave them because I prayed and everything. Yeah, but you're still bitter, right? So you need, let's be honest. Like, I mean, I, you know, well, I forgave them. You know, I said, well, I forgive you. Well, okay. So let's talk about how to do forgiveness the right way. I think, I think with all good forgiveness, all good forgiveness has with it um, grief. And if you've not identified what the sin committed against you cost you, then how can you actually forgive it? Does that make sense? Like, like in the parable, when Jesus talks about this servant who owed his master, I can't remember, I don't remember all the numbers, but it's like $50 million, right? It's an obscene amount of money. But the point is, there was an amount of money, right? He knew how much he had, he had loaned him that he wasn't getting back. So he knew what his loss was, right? And, and then the second thing about that parable, he forgave him, but he didn't loan him any more money. Does that make sense? And so forgiveness, how do you do it? I think the first thing is an inventory of what I lost. Like, what did it cost me? What was the pain I dealt with? Um, did I lose my mojo? Did I lose my confidence? Did I lose some of my own self-worth or image in this situation? What, what did it actually cost me? Because until I know what it cost me, I don't really know what I'm forgiving. And saying, well, I forgive somebody is, is a magic word, but there's a difference between verbalizing forgiveness and releasing them. Like, here's the deal. If you've said, I forgive them, but every time you get around them, you, you get this angst about you, or you read that they had a flat tire and you're like, yeah, then you haven't forgiven them. <laughs> you haven't forgiven them because you haven't released them, right? And so here's the whole thing. Forgiveness is where I get to, forgiveness is about freeing two people, right? It's about you freeing them so you can be free. Because if you haven't forgiven them, they're still in your life and they're still dictating and controlling parts of it. If nothing else, your emotional state at different times. Amen. And so forgiveness is about freeing them. And, and here's what forgiveness essentially says. And, and here's the second. So the first part is what it costs. And the second part is I'm going to own what it costs. All right. So, so I'm going to deal with what I lost and I'm going to release them from the responsibility to make me whole. Right? So I'm, in other words, I'm going to accept the consequence of what they did and I'm going to release them from ever having to make this right. I, the most interesting thing, uh, it, it really, it, it rings true, but it was interesting. One time I had a gentleman in our church come talk to me. He needed to come talk to me. I got to come talk to you. Okay. So come talk. He said, Pastor, I have this really bad issue. What's the issue? He said, um, <clears throat> years ago, this person in my family wronged me in this way. And after years and years and years, they came back to me and apologized. I'm like, that's great. What's the issues? I don't feel any better. And I'm like, oh, well, you got to forgive them. Like, you got to let them off the hook. And here's the thing. Just because they came back and apologized, if they apologize to you, it doesn't make you whole. The reason we want the apology is not because it fixes the offense. It's because it validates the pain. Right? But your pain is valid whether they ever see it or not. Does it make sense? And so I take an inventory. This is what it costs me. I'm going to accept the consequence of what they did, and I'm going to release them. And, and listen, this is what we need to be honest about. Sometimes that's a process, right? Sometimes you got to try at it for a little while, right? So um, I don't know if that helps, but that's forgiveness, right? Um, are tattoos okay for Christians? <laughs> um. You know, here's the thing. Um, religion's dumb. And religious people are people that have had adhered and yielded themselves to stupidity. And so here's the thing about tattoos. You know, I know the Bible. In Leviticus, the Levitical law, right? The Levitical law talks about not marking up our bodies, right? And I get this. I have no tattoos. I have no desire to get tattoos. Um, I, I don't have any um, Julie doesn't have any tattoos. We don't tattoo in the house, right? Um, but, but I'll say this. For me, honestly, um, I just think they're... I guess I need to answer the question because I'm about to say, I, I, you know, I think this is one of those, you and Jesus work it out. Because I, I don't really see anywhere in the Bible... Other, I understand Levitical law, but the Levitical law 
um, the part of the law it's a part of, and you could go into the parts of the Levitical law and all this kind of stuff. I just think we're under grace. And so if you want a tattoo, I think pray about it. I think be wise, you know, and, and I know some people are like, well, it's okay if it's a cross or a scripture, you know, or, you know, but if it's a skull, then that's terrible. I just think, you know, it's, it's, you know, our body's a temple of the Holy Spirit, but we're still the manager of it, you know, and I think probably for me, um, I can tell you this, I'm not offended by people that have tattoos and, we have had people preach here that have tattoos. Pastor Alan Smith has some of the coolest tattoos I've ever seen. He's a pastor, so I'm pretty sure that he would go along with me on this one. I just don't think they're wrong. I, you know, that's just my conviction, but I think you ought to be wise about it, right? Like, you know, if you can't pay, you know, your mortgage, don't go make payments on a tattoo. You understand? I know we're rednecks, but let's, let's do better than that, right? And so, uh, anyways, I personally, I just, the way I see scripture, I just don't think it's that big of a deal. But there again, if you're under the age of whatever age is supposed to be, please check with your parents and don't say, Pastor Marty says, okay, I'm not saying it's okay. I'm saying, ask God about it. And if you and God think it's okay, Pastor Marty thinks it's okay. Okay. Does that make sense? So I'm already going to get an email on that one. <laughs> um, <clears throat> um, <clears throat> All right. How do I forgive my parents who have hurt me so deeply? I think we've talked about forgiveness. It's really hard when it's your parents because a lot of our sense of self comes from our parents. Um, and then it's kind of interesting. We get a sense of self from our parents and the way we grow is to actually separate from our parents, right? So we call that differentiation. So you always see an unhealthiness is when you have uh, parents and kids who have not separated fully and that child has not become their own independent self. And that's hard for parents and that's a process. Um, and so, so it's kind of two things. Um, in this whole idea of relating to parents. And so because we get a sense of self and, and let's face it, the, the people we always want in our corner, et cetera, um, are our parents. And when our parents hurt us, it hurts bad. Um, and most people, most everyone, listen, if your parents were, were wonderful parents, I had wonderful parents, they're not perfect parents. Um, I love my kids. I really try to be a good dad. I'm not a perfect dad. Um, there'll probably be some time my kids in counseling talking about something I did. And, you know, um, I'm really okay with that because I think talk about it because I, you know, I, I apologize to my kids and then I ask them to pray for me. So when I feel like I've done something wrong or they're, they're saying, Hey dad, I don't feel like you're listening to me, et cetera. And I've taught them to do that respectfully. So they don't, it's not in anger or we, we don't, we don't do lots of yelling at our house cause I'm really against it. Um, so I don't, I don't like that. Pastor Marty doesn't like to yell. And, and so I don't think it's necessary. Um, and so even with our kids, like I can see when one of them shuts down and when I, I've got two boys and, and a daughter and I, and you can see when a kid shuts down and as a parent, you need to be sensitive and say, okay, my kid's shutting down. That means they're, they're disconnecting emotionally. I can't really help them anymore. I need to find out why they're shutting down. And many times with kids, they just feel like I did, they didn't have a voice or they're not being heard. And usually if you just let them be heard, um, you know, and that's healthy, by the way. It's not that they're right. They're kids. They don't know anything. But, um, <laughs> but you give them a voice and you let them be heard. We're not perfect parents. And so most people carry a, a father or mother wound. That's what we call them, father or mother wounds. Um, most people carry them because mom or dad hurt them whether they meant to or not. And there's a difference between trying to hurt someone and someone being hurt by what you did. And so how do you forgive your parents? I think it's the same way. You've got to inventory the loss. You've got to accept the consequences. You've got to release them from responsibility. Um, and, then, um, and then you try to move forward. And um, um, <clears throat> All right, let me see. How can we break free from narcissism and pride? Um, well, I think, um, <laughs> I think as, as humans, we all have a little bit of twinge of selfishness. It's, and here's the reason why, um, is because, um, the fall of man unseated the divine order of God's creation in that God created Adam to be ruled by a spirit and then be a soul and a body. So we're three parts. For Adam to make the decision he made and say, well, I'm going to decide what's right for me, he elevated his soul, what he thought, what he felt, what he knew, um, what he wanted above the Spirit of God in him, and it cost him the Spirit. And so, if you will, 
where God's Holy Spirit was supposed to be in the driver's seat or, or the president, if you will, of Adam's being. Adam became the president, and when he does that, then all of a sudden we, we, we become people who are mostly controlled by self, mostly selfish. So when we're talking about uh, narcissism, most people have a twinge of narcissism uh, because we just kind of are so focused on self and see everything through the lens of self. And, um, and, um, and so how do, we, how do we deal with that? Well, as far as pride, what I've found is um, the real key here is being self-aware. And that's what narcissists do not have. They are only aware of themselves. They are not aware of how their self impacts everyone around them, right? I was about to say, when it comes to pride, what I've found is you can humble yourself or God will help, <laughs> right? Because God doesn't just say pride is bad. God says, oh, you have pride? I'm now your enemy, right? He opposes the proud opposes. It's not that if you have pride, see, God, people think God gets passive. Well, they have pride. I'm just not going to work for them. No, God's like, you have pride. I'm going to line up against you and I'm going to fight with you. And I'm going to do that to, to break you. So when we're talking about narcissism and pride. Most of the time people aren't aware and people aren't aware. Uh, you, when you go through life, you leave a wake, like a boat leaves a wake in the water. There is a wake Right. So if I went back and talked to people you're in relationship with, people you know, your family, I'm going to find some common denominators about you that you may or may not know. The greatest thing that you can, can look at is start having some conversations about, hey, here's a great question to ask like a spouse, someone you trust, a, a friend, a life group leader. Hey, how do you experience me? Now, be prepared if you're going to ask this question, because if they're not honest, it doesn't help you come to self-awareness, Right. And so, so for me, narcissism is about focusing on how I impact the world around me if I want to get rid of it, right? If I want to start figuring it out. Um, and pride is, is, really about, is, is, is really a spiritual condition that needs to be repented of. And, and here's how pride, I mean, pride breaks, like if you're, if you're in Walmart and think you're smarter than everybody else and everybody else is beneath you, you got pride issues. Like if you think you're always right, you have pride issues, right? Um, I've had some people around me that were the most prideful people in the world and no matter how you talk to them, they couldn't see it. And sometimes it just takes a freight train and that's where God opposes the proud. And, and then God picks up the pieces and it's a lot more humble. And, you know, I, there's a time in my life where I was really prideful and, and really just self-centered and really, you know, um, I just couldn't see the effect that I had on the world around me. And there was a series of events and God really helped me, but um, I really became aware of how I impact the world. And so I think um, if you really now... I don't know if the question is, you think you're narcissistic and prideful, or you think you're married to someone who is. If you're married to someone who is, I don't you know, pray for them, um, but, and have some talks and, and tell them how you're experiencing them in a loving way. But I, I think that, that kind of is probably the best I can do. How do you help someone when they have a victim mentality? I've found it's really hard to help people that don't want help. Victims rarely want help. If they had help, they wouldn't be the victim. Right? Does that make sense? Like, um, and so um, I think here's what I think in general. If you have, it, it all comes to love and relational equity. If you're going to try to help someone, does that make sense? It's love and if you don't have love, grace, and relational equity, you probably are not the one to help them anyway. But I think the best thing to do is learn to ask questions. You know, like you're dealing with someone with a victim mentality. They're like, "Oh man, whole world's against me." Really? Like you, the whole world? Like everybody, even the people who don't know you are against you. Like you don't have one person, like am I against you? Because I thought I was for you. Like help qualify that for me. And so I think sometimes the best thing to do really is with helping people. It, in freedom, we call it question the lie. Right? So when you hear something that you're like, I know that's not true. They can't see it because they're filtered. So you learn to question it. Right? Well, God doesn't love me. Really? God doesn't love you? Not at all? Not even just a little bit? Well, you know, maybe a little, I don't, you know, and here now we've opened the door. You know, always questions do more than, than statements. That's why counseling, a lot of good counselors ask great questions. That's why I'm not a counselor because I don't have patience. 
because like in 15 minutes, I got it figured out, and I just need you to shut up and do what I'm trying to tell you to do. And that never works, and so that's why I send you to counselors. And so, <laughs> so anyways, but does that make sense? So, you know, I think pray for them, obviously, but I think learn to, to question the lies that, that they're speaking out and just have grace for them. Um, you know, and maybe, maybe there's a question there, time to say, hey, you know, it, it seems to me like you're always on the losing end. Yeah, I am. I wonder why that is. Um, victim mentality, uh, people really have to work to stay the victim because that's their sense of self. Their identity is built there. And if they're not the victim, who are they? And usually victims have been victimized. So they're de- you're dealing with someone's trauma. And that's why you need to have grace because a lot of times you don't know what the trauma is. But there's been trauma and, and, and manipulation really by the enemy of their soul to get them to that state because now they're, they're stuck there. Um, let's see. How do you help a family member who has an addiction and doesn't realize that they put that before everything else even after you prayed with them and talked to them over and about it? Um, ah, great questions. Um, Someone who has, make sure I get that right. Someone who has an addiction uh, and they're putting the addiction first. Um, To me, boundaries. And uh, boundaries, if you think of them, they're kind of like invisible property lines. And boundaries say, here's what I'm responsible for, and here's who I am, and here's who I'm not, and here's what I'm not responsible for. Um, People can't remain in addictions without enablers, right? And so typically, if someone in a marriage is in an addiction, whether the spouse knows it or not, if they know they're in addiction, sometimes they don't, don't know, but it, it seems like you do. So if you're in a relationship with someone, and let's just say it's a spouse, and, and, and th- they are putting that first, you're enabling it, and you might be enabling it by not having boundaries. And sometimes boundaries are saying, well, see, you're going to be responsible for that. I'm not going to call your boss and tell him you're sick. Right, I'm not going to cover for you. I'm going to let you feel the. I'm going to let you feel the full effect of what it is you're dealing with. Uh, it's the hardest thing to do with kids, by the way. I counsel with lots of parents whose kids are stuck in addictions and those type of things, and and I've you know kind of said things like, "Hey, let them go to jail. Don't go get them out again." Um, you know. And, and you say, would you do that to your child? Well, what you have to understand is it's probably the only way to save them because you've been bailing them out for how long? I mean, how long would the prodigal son stayed in the pigsty if he kept getting a care package from his house? Right? You know, he, he had to get hungry before he, before he could take... Because here's what addiction is. I'm not taking responsibility for me. Right? Because if you're in, if you're in, if you're dealing with an addiction, you're not being responsible for you, right? Now that's not condemning. That's just the truth. The way you help someone in addictions, you got to help them be responsible. It's kind of like I never forget. Doctor uh, Hen- uh, Henry Cloud uh, told a story one time. This very wealthy man, very fluent, flew to his office. I have to meet with you. He walks in. He tells him, "I have a problem. What's your problem? My son is, you know, he's flunked out of three colleges." He's doing drugs, you know, all this kind of stuff. Okay, well, well, where's your son? Oh, well, he's not here. Well, where is he? Well, he's skiing in Colorado. Okay, why is he? Well, I mean, and how did he flunk out of like three schools? Because I'm on the board and I keep getting him in another school. And then to make sure he didn't party, I, I bought him a condo and a nice car and I give him a stopping. And, and Henry Lugan said, here's, I can see what the problem is. Your son has no problems. He's like, yeah, he is. He keeps flunking out of school. He has no plan. No, he has no problems. Trust me. He's on a vacation. He's got a free house, free car, a stopping. He's skiing in Vail. You're sitting in a shrink's office. You have the problem. And the problem is you don't know how to let your son have his problems. Right? And so I think that, that kind of is what you have to do is, is you have to have a con- And I think a conversation lovingly to say, hey, I, you, you know what? You're putting this above everything else. Maybe you don't see it. Maybe you do. I'm, I'm going to need to set a boundary and say, I'm going to be responsible for me, but I'm not going to be responsible for you. And I'm going to let you deal with you. And then you'll find out how codependent you are on whether or not you can do that or not. Does that make sense? Um, 
How do you believe that God will heal when your situation looks hopeless? Um, I believe that God will heal based on what he said and who he is. And for me, I think it's sin to let any situation define who God is. And I know that sounds really blunt, but, but I think that's where you have to start. But who is God? I am the Lord who heals. Right? He, the same way he said, I am love, I am light, I am life. I am the God who heals. And, and I, think that, um, I think that when it comes to this one, we have to start with who is God? God is a healer. Right? And that's what God said about himself, and that's what his word says. Right? And, and so I'm going to start with what God says about him. Because God said he was a savior, I started with that. God said he was a Lord and Redeemer, I started with that. And God says he's a healer, and I'm just going to go with that. And, and I understand that the situation looks hopeless, and you're talking to a pastor that's done funerals that I don't think should have happened. Right? But I think that where the church fails is, is we run away from the tension between God's revelation and our experience. Right? And I think a lot of doctrine has been created to, to make my experience feel more normal or more helpful because that tension was too painful and too hard. And I don't think we're ever going to see breakthrough into healing and all those type of things until we just embrace the tension that this is what God's word says and this is where my experience is and one of these needs to change and God doesn't change. Right? And so for me, um, here's, here's my latest trick. I'll tell you my latest trick. I think that, that God's kingdom is a kingdom of health, and I think God's kingdom is present on the earth, and I could try to teach all of this, and, but I think, I think Scripture meditation is the thing that's missing from the church, and one of the reasons we don't see the miraculous is because the, the way you see the miraculous is God's reality has to be greater than our reality because that's where faith is generated, Right? And so we've got to spend more time in his world than in our world. And so, you know, I was, I was reading, I was sharing this with an elder, but I was reading, I, th- I don't know if I shared it with y'all, but um, Joshua 1.8, you know, um, talks about how, you know, you'll, you'll remember the Lord and I just went blank. But anyways, it says, um, you know, you'll meditate on the word day and night. And you'll be careful to do like this book of the law shall not depart. There it is. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth. Right? So the first thing, if I'm pursuing healing is what's coming out of my mouth because life and death are in the power of the tongue. So if I keep saying I'm sick, I'm working uphill for God to heal me. Now I'm not saying that you ignore symptoms, right? Remember, I had this whole dislocated thing, disc thing, and they told me all this spinal stenosis and all this, and I couldn't hardly walk. I never ignored the symptoms, but it's just what I spoke was, that's medical fact, but I have a spiritual reality I'm pursuing, right? So the book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth. You'll meditate in it. Meditate day and night. Meditate day and night. I found that the the real problem with believers and experiencing kingdom realities is we meditate in 15 hours, 15 minutes every day that we call a quiet time. And then that is separate from the rest of our lives. And what he said is you meditate in day and night, day and night, not 15 minutes a day. I'm not knocking your devotional time. I'm saying we're talking about which reality is going to be greater right? I can't meditate on a doctor's report 24 and a half or 23 and a half hours a day and meditate on the word 30 minutes a day and expect something to change, right? You'll meditate day and night. So book of law and out to part. What am I saying? Meditate day and night, right? What am I putting in? What am I thinking about? What is becoming reality, right? I'll be careful to, to do it. So I'm going to obey whatever I feel like God wants to do. Um, book of law and out to part. Be careful to do. And then, now watch this. This is the key that I pointed out that I've never seen. And I always thought it says, and then God will make your way prosperous and you'll have good success. It's not what it says. It says, then you will make your way prosperous. So who God's given us authority on, over our own lives when we're working from the right vantage point. So how do I have hope? Listen, I've dealt with I deal with hopeless situations on a day-to-day basis right? And if, 
If you're a pastor, that's what you do. We have people in our church that have what the world would call hopeless situations. We do that day to day. How do you maintain that God is a healer? It's who he said he was. It's what I say. It's what I think about, right? It's what I'm obedient to. It's what I meditate on. And, and I've found when we meditate on the word of God, our hope goes up, right? So, so that, I don't know if that answers it. That's, a, that's kind of a lengthy answer, but it's a good sermon. Um, Leviticus 18 talks about nearly every sexual sin you can think of. That is true. When it talks about homosexuality, it says a man must not lie with a man. It never says anything about lesbian behavior. Why? Um, there's a lot of time. Well, it's kind of like we're called sons of God, but are some of us females? And so there's a lot of times in the Bible where it addresses what it feels like the masculine is, which would include the feminine, Right? So now Paul breaks it down in Romans 1 and talks about men exchanging unnatural desires and men laying with men and women with women. So Paul breaks it out for us in the New Testament. But, um, but in Levit- Leviticus 18, the female is assumed because they're talking about the masculine. Does that make sense? How do I feel about divorce and get married again? Um, I did a whole sermon on it. And so there's like 50 minutes of tons of nuggets that you can go back and listen to. It's the first message in the U.S. Fort series. Um, how can I help the pain heal of my husband's hurt and anger towards me when, I, when I've healed my pain towards him? Um, you know, <clears throat> let me just address the issue. I'm not sure exactly how the question is, but I got enough of it to understand that there's hurt both ways in this relationship, Right. And I think the first thing that you need to do is, um, I, I, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, if you got this kind of pain, and, and I don't know if you're, I don't know where you're at, but um, I think both of you have to pursue wholeness, and then and then you have to to pursue forgiveness, and then you have to pursue reconciliation, and all those things have to happen. And so I think the first thing is that um, you have to acknowledge what you've how you've hurt each other. But I, I'll just say this: depending on how critical the situation is, I would recommend getting some help. Um, I've found when when when, rela- when marriages get this critical, if it is a critical, if they get critical, it's really hard for a husband and wife to find their way through navigating restoration and pain by themselves. And so I would recommend getting help. Um, but it really kind of comes down to there's got to be forgiveness. And I think here's here's where I would say you have to find a common footing. And what I mean by that is you're both hurt. So communication may be broken down. There may be a lot of assumption. There's a lot of pain. There's probably a lot of stuff going on. But find the common footing. Like used to when I did counseling, I don't do it anymore. Please don't call and ask me to do counseling. Um, But, and I have to say that because even through this series, a lot of people wanted me to do counseling. You really don't want me to do counseling. Trust me when I say you don't want me to do counseling because I'm going to do, if you ever saw that little spoof Bob Newhart did where the lady came in, she was scared of being buried alive in the box, right? And he's like, just take five minutes. And she talks. And he's like, so you're scared? Yep. And he's like, stop it. All right. Have a good day. <laughs> and, and then it finally winds up to, he's like, stop it or I'll bury you alive in a box. Anyways, it was funny. That's kind of how I do counseling is like, stop that. And so, um, <laughs> um, but, but I think that you got to find a footing. And so what I used to ask people when they came in is, number one, how committed to you are the Lord? How committed are you to the Lord Jesus Christ? And secondly, how committed are you to this marriage? And so if, you're, if your marriage is going to win, you've got to be very committed to it, and you've got to be able to work through the pain. It's not going to be fun, but you probably, probably need some help. So I, I don't know if that's helpful. Um, how do you find God's purpose for your life, especially if you are older and alone? Um, I think a great question. Um, <clears throat> I think the first thing is, and, and the assumption of the question is good, you've assumed that there is a purpose for your life, so that's, that's the start, because there is. Uh, Ephesians 2.10 says we're God's workmanship created in Christ um, for good works which he prepared beforehand. Um, I think the first thing is, is you, you said you've, you're alone, so my challenge would be, are you in a life group? Are you serving on a dream team? Um, if you want to find your purpose, we do this thing called Dream Team. Dream Team is where you get involved and you start serving. Serving is incremental in steps, kind of like we follow Jesus one step at a time. Peter did not preach the day of Pentecost the first day he followed Jesus, right? 
Uh, you know, there were a lot of little things that he did, even leading up to the Mount of Transfiguration, and then the denial, and then the fishing trip, and then he finally got there. But he followed Jesus, and Jesus said, hey, you could be on my dream team and go around with me and be on my ministry team. We're going to go from town to town and preach the gospel. And so Peter didn't start out as a super apostle. He started out as a fisherman who just decided to follow Jesus and help where he could, i.e. dream team. Dream team is where we start our walk towards connecting to our purpose. And so my first challenge would be, as you have a church here that's your family, how connected are you? Um, connection is really a lot of times where purpose comes from. And so are you in a life group? Are you on a dream team? Have you become an owner? Those are places, number one, that start moving you past being alone and start moving you towards purpose. Then finding your purpose, I'd ask myself a few questions. By the way, if you go through first step, assuming that you haven't, maybe you have, you go through first step, we do a personality assessment, a spiritual gifts assessment, right? And so we kind of help you try to see how God designed you. So look at your design, i.e. two great questions to ask yourself. What really ticks me off? And the second question, what really makes me tick? And between that tension is a good place to start looking. Like if children being exploited exploited ticks you off, maybe look at adoption ministry, maybe look at um, uh, you know human trafficking, something like that, right? Um, if, if, you know, elderly being forgotten ticks you off, then start a ministry there, start a life group that reaches out there. So what ticks you off? What makes you tick? The reason I do this, what ticks me off? People wasting their lives. What makes me tick? People finding their purpose. Pathway Church, connecting people to purpose. Been since day one, right? Because I think everybody has one. And that's why we do weekend services, life groups, next steps, dream team, because all of that is a funnel to help you find your purpose. So for me, there's some good places to start, along with obviously prayer and listening for God and asking God for vision. So um, how do you help your college-age child that is disappointed in God and has turned to witchcraft? Um, I, that's a hard one. Um, I, think, <laughs> I think Jesus, you have to... I think I would use the approach of Jesus. Jesus came as light or as love, as light, and as life, right? So if you read the, the preaching of Jesus, the only people Jesus ever preached against, religious people, right? With everybody else, he was for them, and he was love, and he was life, and he was light. And so you're dealing with someone that's, that's you know, college-age student, disappointed in God. It's hard because depending on what college you are, most colleges now are liberal, um, you know, the liberals got into the schools and created curriculum long before the Christians even knew what happened, I think, because we were asleep somewhere. And so um, it's, you know, colleges can be kind of an interesting place nowadays. Um, but how do you help them? Well, um, <clears throat> number one is um, not by preaching to them. Let's talk about some things not to do. <laughs> um, preaching to them probably is not going to help. Um, but I think loving them, being light, being life, um, and, you know, I think you, you pray with tenacity, right? You love with fervor. You, you maintain a gospel witness in your life. And, and you stay consistent in your own faith. And, and, you, and you let them know you're there, for, you're for them. And you let them know you're willing to talk about it. And it, with witchcraft, it's hard. You know, someone disappointed God, witchcraft, I mean, that's demonic obviously, and, and that's going to have some serious repercussions. But at the same time, where does the property line end? They're, they're a college-age child. They're adults. They make their choices. And so for me, I, I would spend time. I know when we were teenagers, I wasn't in witchcraft, but I was really rebellious. And my mom and dad anointed everything in our house. Um, not We didn't know it, um, <clears throat> but literally they would, like if we were asleep, Sleeping late on Saturday morning, they would go out to my car and they would anoint the radio and they'd anoint the steering wheel and they'd anoint the seats and they'd say, God, when he sits down, let him remember, you know, that, you know, you're whatever, whatever they prayed. And then when I was driving in the car, they were in the house anointing everything we touched, our beds and our stereos. And, um, you know, I mean, our joke was I could like pull up to the house and slide all the way to my room. Um, <laughs> but they were fervent in prayer. And, and I think that's what you have to be. I think that's where your energy has to be. Because I don't think you're going to talk them out of it. I think you, you, you know, you can have, depend on how you're, I, here's the main thing. It's better to have open communication even if you don't like it 
than to have no communication because you need to be right. And so when you're dealing with kids, especially one that's an adult, open communication, right? You know, open communication. You know, like if you have a a child that's, that's, you know, chosen a, a life that's, you know, gay or lesbian or something like that, I'd say the same thing. Open communication, open communication. Now you may have boundaries like, hey, you know, we love you and you're always accepted here. Uh, but for Christmas, we're not going to do certain things, and maybe this person may not, or they can only come at this time. I mean, you may have rules for your house, but you want to do it respectfully and keep open communication. And so that's really what you want to do here, and you want to be love and light in life uh, and be as consistent and constant with that. And then you just want to pray like like Psycho Billy Ninja Prayer. <laughs> that's what you want to do, right? Um, so... Um, is birth control okay for Christians? Um, you know what I really think? I th- and it's not a cop-out. I think that's something you and God have to work out for you. Um, I don't think it's really even my place to say, um, you know, um, as far as uh, birth control is concerned. Um, Julie and I, were I can tell you from our experience, uh, we, were not, we were not birth control people. Um, and that was a, just a conviction that we had. We just weren't, you know, there's other things that you can do without talking about things we shouldn't talk about, but, <laughs> but we, we just, we just weren't birth control people. Um, we've never condemned anyone that just did birth control. Um, you know, now, uh, it's progressing to morning after drugs and those type of things. And, and those really, to me, start really kind of hitting some moral fabric, um, because they're specifically designed to abort any life that may exist, um, you know, and that's a little bit different than just you know someone that's on their regiment of birth control. Um, so for me, I think it's something you had to pray about. I'm not going to condemn you and say for us, we we just weren't birth control people, um, and that's why we found out we were having Luke. And of course, now we had a different story. Um, Julie was never supposed to be able to have kids, so how shocked we were four months after being married to find out we were having Luke. And, uh, and so, so, and then, you know, after that, we weren't successful anymore. And then we went, you know, Mariah and, uh, and then we found out right after Mariah got home that next December, we got Mariah June 30th. And next December, we found out Briggs was on his way. After we had Briggs, we said, Hey, we're going to tie something off. We're going to do something here because we don't know where the magic ends, you know? And so, (laughs) so, um, I can just tell you, you know, so that, that's our journey, but I think that's something I would really pray about is recreational marijuana. Okay. Um, <laughs> no, I think it's a great question. I mean, we live in a culture that's so crazy. Um, I, I'll give you, I'll give you, um, I'll give you some thoughts. How about that? Um, my answer is no, I don't think it's okay. And the reason I don't is because what is the purpose of it? It's to disconnect you from reality. So I think anything that is intentional from you to disconnect and disengage with reality, I think now we're using a substance to be, to be irresponsible, right? And I know, well, well, what about drinking a glass of wine? Well, you can drink a glass of wine, and I'm not saying you should or shouldn't, but since that's going to be the comparison, you can drink a glass of wine, Right? and not disconnect from reality. Now, if you're drinking a bottle or two, we're back to rule number one. We're disconnected from reality. And now we got to look at why are we using this substance to disconnect from reality? And I think if you're using a substance to disconnect from reality, all right, then you're abusing the substance, right? Let me say it another way. The Bible talks against excess. By the way, the substance could be chocolate cake. Like all of a sudden, no, peanut butter's okay. Um, <laughs> let's be clear on this. <laughs> the book of Imaginations, chapter four, clearly defines peanut butter is safe. Um, so, so for me, and I, and I really think, I know everybody's pushed legalizing marijuana, and I know people say, well, God gave us all the seed-bearing herbs and plants, and I think, hey, there's, there's some medical uses for marijuana, and I think under a licensed physician, targeted at those specific things. I think that was probably God's intent from marijuana, right? Um, but I think, you know, like I've had a bad day. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think, 
I don't think that's what we're looking for as believers because, because we're disconnecting from reality, right? And we're abusing something because now what we're doing is we're finding a way to not deal with what's going on. So we're not dealing with what's going inside of us uh, or going on inside of us. So it's, it's moving us, I think, away from God because God is very much in reality. He is reality, right? And so for me, recreational marijuana is, I don't think it's okay. I think you're probably just setting yourself up for a mess. And I think, where does it stop? And then is this okay recreationally? Is this okay? Is this okay? Is this okay? And, and we could go on and on and on. And so I don't think it's the same as having a glass of wine with your spaghetti. Now, again, if you're drinking two or three or four or five bottles, <laughs> that's a problem. Um, you know, and, and that's why I say to people in the, you know, it, on the great alcohol debate, I always say, hey, could you stop drinking for 90 days? And, and like, if, if you found yourself in a position where you're drinking, um, you know, every week, every day, whatever the case may be, you probably in all responsibility should see how long could I go without this? Because you may be addicted and not know it. Right? And so, I, anyways, that's kind of to the point. So I, I think, I think no, I don't think it's okay. I don't think it's wise. I don't think there's, I'm, here's my question. What good could come out of it? You know, <clears throat> like I have these wisdom questions I ask, like what would a good father do? What would a good boss do? What would a good leader do? Hey, what good could come out of that? And if there is not some good that could come out of that, then God could be in it. Okay, well, that's my sermon. <laughs> Let me see if I can finish this up here. Um, um, oh, that's a good question. Does God punish people according to their past mistakes? For example, having fertility problems because of premarital sex. Um, let, me, let me say the simple answer. The simple answer is no. Um, that's a pretty religious mindset. Um, it's performance mindset, which is based in religion. Unfortunately, a lot of people have been raised in that culture, um, and we've we've dealt that we've had that here at the church, where some of the church has told other people the reason why they're struggling in this area is because they made past mistakes, and we stepped in pretty rapidly to say, in a nice and loving way, we need to get deliverance from that Pharisaical spirit because we don't do crap like that here, and so um, the answer is no. And the answer is no. And to ask that question, you're probably already dealing with condemnation. And, and what we need to understand is that um, <clears throat> if Jesus took the consequence for our sin, like what's the consequence for our sin? Death. So, so did Jesus take our death and the methodology to get there? It's a yes or no question. Did Jesus die for us? Then he took the consequence for our sin. So to assume that now I would need to take the consequence for my sin is to make the assertion that Jesus didn't pay for it. That he paid for some. He paid for parts. He got me an acquittal. But that's not actually what he did. He didn't get you off. He didn't get you an acquittal. You were guilty. And he said, I'm going to take all the consequence for your sin. I'm going to take it all. So if Jesus bore all the consequences. Now, let me back up and say, it is true that sin does bear consequences going forward in life, right? Like, you know, I mean, let's be honest. You go have an affair. Is God's grace sufficient? Yes. Are you going to lose your family? Could be, right? But that's not the same as God in, in kind of enacting a retribution on you for past mistakes and making your life harder moving forward. That's not, that's not how God even works. It's how, could, how could he be good? And more importantly, how could he pay for sin and then ask you to, to, to bear some of the cost of it? Does that make sense? And so I, to me, no. I, I would answer this a thousand percent no with all certainty in pretty good relationship with God. Having known him for a while, we've had some conversations. Um, that's just not the way he works. God, God does not... Um, God's, God's whole mission was to free us from not only sin, but the effects of it. Now, we can make choices. We can do silly things. I mean, you go out here and you drive 80 miles an hour down the loop. You're still going to heaven, but, you know, the popo is going to pull you over, right? And we're in Longview, so it's the low po. But the low po is going to pull you over. 
And so, um, but you know, the, the kind officer is going to do his job. And you know, I never forget, I have a friend, several friends in law enforcement. My favorite was a friend of mine pulled a lady over on the loop out here. She didn't go to our church. Um, thank God. But, um, <laughs> pulled her over. She was late for prayer meeting. She was speeding. <laughs> And then she got irate with him, called him all types of names on her way to prayer meeting. And uh, then she got so mad, he, he, she's like, I can't believe you're giving me a ticket. He's like, ma'am, you were driving 20 miles an hour over the speed limit. I'm not giving you this ticket. You earned it, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and then she got mad and sped off without her driver's license. Left her driver's license. So he had to go pull her over again. <laughs> it was awesome. Anyways, um, yeah, you go do something, it's going to have some consequences, but but I, I, God just does not enact retribution and punishment on us for past sins and failures and mistakes. And, and by the way, if he did, whew, we would all be in a mess, right? Because the Bible says all, all have sinned. And, fall, and so if God had to enact some type of lingering punishment, retribution, you know, something on us because of something we did, um, Man, that's a bad, it's a bad deal for all of us. And I think the enemy loves to tie us to that. Um, he loves to keep us focused on our performance because it's the performance of Jesus that sets us free and provide. Everything's provided, but it's provided by grace. Like you can't earn anything from God, but you can have everything from God. Like he has freely given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. You can have anything, but the moment you try to earn it, you can't get it. So if he can keep you trying to earn something you already have, you never get what was already paid for. And so most of the time, that's the whole idea of religious activity and religious mindsets and those type of things is to keep me working for something I already have because as long as I'm working for it, I can't actually have it. Does that make sense? Remember the, the older brother and the prodigal son? I've been slaving for you all these years and you've never given me anything. And he's like... Everything I have is yours. The problem was you were trying to earn it instead of just receiving it. This may be some of the best preaching I've done tonight. <laughs> right? And so I think this is the mindset, really, that the enemy is, you know, religion at its best is humanistic and at its worst, demonic. Religion. Uh, Bono, you know Bono with YouTube? Right? Um, one of my favorite quotes is from Bono. He says, religion is what happens when the Holy Spirit leaves the room. <laughs> that was a good quote. And so, anyways, um, so I just think that's, you, you got it. What you need to do, um, here's what you need to do <clears throat> to break free from that. You're dealing with a, you're dealing with a stronghold here. So you got a, a way of thinking that's contrary to God. The first thing you need to do is, okay, I believed a lie. The lie I believed is, what I'm struggling with now is because of what I did then, all right? And so you need to say, okay, God, that's a lie. Forgive me. And then ask God, okay, how did I, wh 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 what, how have I taken responsibility for this when it wasn't mine to take responsibility for and relinquish and, and, and repent of the sin? If you haven't, just, okay, I did this, I, I repent. Hey, I'm sorry I took responsibility for something that wasn't mine. And then ask God what the truth is. Ask him what the truth is. And uh, you might be amazed at what he says and, and what he does. Amen? Hey, well, it's been fun. Why don't you stand with me?